Hello everyone, I thought I'd start with a plug. A plug for my own new website. It's TonyWilsonAuthor.com and I've put up all my books there and you can buy them. Previously I've relied on old-fashioned communication, an email from you, an email back from me, a bank transfer, and it's been very interactive. Well, if you like the anonymity of normal internet shopping, you can just buy the books now, TonyWilsonAuthor.com. You just click on the one you want, pay for the book, and I'll post it out. And if you still want to do all the emails, you can. I welcome an email from anyone, especially Speakola listeners. Give me feedback on the show. Tell me what I could do better. Suggest a guest. Suggest a speech. I'm about to make a list of the best speeches of 2021, and I'd love to know the ones that have really stood out for you. But if you're interested in a Christmas present book, I can sign copies and personalise. Go to TonyWilsonAuthor.com. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak Ola with Tony Wilson. Hello, everyone. I am Tony Wilson. Welcome to this edition of the Speak Ola podcast, and it's an Oscars edition. I've got an Academy Award winner, I've had Pulitzer Prize winners, I've had Helpman Award winners, I've had Logie Award winners, I've had Young Australians of the Year, I've had the leader of the UK Labor Party. But finally, it's an Oscar winner, and it's an Australian Academy Award winner. His name is Adam Elliott. He won the 2004 Best Animation Short Oscar for his film Harvey Crumpet, a claymation. And he is the most notable animator in Australia. He's actually got a feature film being shot next year here in Melbourne, which we're going to talk a little bit about in the interview. But it's a great chat and you're really going to enjoy it. And there's probably no speech that I've featured on the podcast so far that had a bigger audience. Adam thinks it was half a billion that watched him receive his gold statuette from Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller. He had his producer, Melanie Coombs, by his side. And in his speech, in his thank you remarks, he referred to his beautiful boyfriend, Dan. Adam was the first to acknowledge a same-sex partner in an Oscar speech in 2004, bizarre thinking it was as recently as 2004 that this happened but the speech wasn't intended as a groundbreaker or a political speech it's just a simple acknowledgement and in fact the focus of this episode isn't going to be so much on either the content or the form of the speech as much as the story that goes with it winning an Oscar, going over there, Los Angeles and Hollywood and the Kodak Theatre and to be a part of the circus that is the Academy Awards. And in fact, I heard Adam Elliott as a corporate speaker in the years after his win. And he was just magnificent at telling the story. There are so many funny and quirky and star-spotting details to this story. 
And there are a few more personable or talented storytellers than Adam. Our sponsor for this episode and for many of the episodes this year is the Podcast Reader. The Podcast Reader takes the long-form podcast and offers edited transcripts of the best interviews. And issue four is out now. Subscribe to the Podcast Reader at podread.org forward slash speakola. Use the offer code speakola. And you'll get three editions of the PDF version of the magazine free. So get a taste of it. The Podcast Reader, out now. And before I press play on Adam Elliott, I'll give the usual plug and thank you to Patreon subscribers. We've picked up a few more since the last episode. And welcome. Thank you. Patreon.com forward slash speakola or look in the episode notes. And also to donors as well, people... Give me one-off donations through PayPal or DonorBox. So thank you very much to everyone who's helped me this year. Well, we've had lots of different types of speakers on the Speakola podcast, but it had to happen. One day we'd get an Academy Award winner who gave an Academy Award speech. And that day is today. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Adam Elliott. Thanks, Tony, for having me. Well, take us back because really you can't really give an Academy Award speech without first winning an Academy Award. I I presume that is a slightly longer story. Take us back to where that started. Well, look, it was, oh, gee, 2004. So we won the Oscar for the 2003 Best short animation category, which is, let's face it, the category everyone goes to make a cup of tea uh, when it's announced. It's sort of it's pretty low on the uh, you know the pecking order of nomination categories. But we had a little film called Harvey Crumpet, which um, somehow managed to get shortlisted, and then we made it to the five nominees. And the next minute, we were. In Hollywood and sitting there listening to, I think it was Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson who read out the, the nominees. Oh, and, and, and marvellous shtick it is too. But we were following your ride because I guess we'd met you as you started to go on it. You'd won some local awards, some local filmmaking awards and come on the radio show that I was presenting, which was Triple R. And then suddenly you were nominated for the Oscar and it was kind of like the whole community back in Melbourne were, were riding your wave, I think. It was, it was very exciting. We felt like, you know, the only two Australians going to the Olympics that year and, of course, no one, no one thought we were going to win and even my mum said, you know, we had no chance of winning. But we, we certainly had this huge groundswell of support from the everyday Aussie who'd never heard of Harvey Grumpet, let's face it, but the fact that we were nominated, everyone got very excited about. But then to win was, you know, that just wasn't meant to happen. So tell us about Harvey Crumpet. What was his Polish name? I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> Harvey Krumpetsky. Harvey <laughs> Krumpetsky. Uh, he'd walked under a few ladders. What were, what were some of his ailments? Yeah, I look a very, you know, very simple story. There's no real three-act three structure or, or complicated plot. It's just a, a, about a man who has perpetual bad luck and... Uh, it was a script I wrote pretty quickly, and uh, you know it was a short film, and it was a it was an animated film, but more specifically a plasticine animated film or a clay animated film. So it was my fourth short, and we really didn't have any expectations. But it, 
I look back now and I think I'd accidentally created a film that was very universal, that, that resonated with people from all around the world. And we really didn't expect an, an American audience to, to enjoy the film, but, um, but they did, yeah. And you had a great bit of luck. If, if, if Harvey was having all the bad luck, you had some great luck in that Jeffrey Rush narrated it. And I guess it maybe gave it that lift into, wow, this is maybe international audiences are interested. Oh, for sure. You know, Jeffrey had just, you know, won an Oscar a few years earlier for Shine. So, of course, he, he, we had an international star in our film. And on the other end of the spectrum, we had Kamal, who, was do, who did a cameo. And so... You know, it's a very eccentric film and, yeah, I think I look back now and I still wonder how we won because we're up against Disney, Pixar and Fox, so we were <laughs> certainly the underdog and who knows, we, we may have won by one vote and I often joke that we won probably because people felt sorry for us and voted for the underdog. But we'll never know because the Academy never release the, the numbers, you know. Maybe they felt that Harvey had had, had enough ailments and nothing's had gone wrong for Harvey with the getting hit by lightning and getting testicular cancer. Let's give the guy a break. You know? like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, look, it was the planets were all well aligned, I think, because, yeah, a story about a, a man with bad luck. You know, I'd, I'd had a lot of bad luck that year too. I, my, uh, my partner had dumped me. Uh, we'd run out of money. I'd had to move home to my parents' house in Patterson Lakes. Uh, I was on the dole the day we we won the Oscar. So, you know, I I related to Harvey, this poor little bald man who'd had lots of bad luck, but so had I. And, um, yeah, look, my life, uh, I think sympathy is really maybe how we won. I don't think so. It was a a magnificent film. But tell us about the... Oscars journey beginning. I mean, you must have been doing something somewhere when you found out that you were one of the five nominees. I imagine that was maybe the biggest bolt of lightning that ever struck you. Yeah, look, we we'd um, had started winning prizes at other film festivals, and I always call the Oscars really just a big film festival. Um, so we'd won a, a prize at an animation festival in France, which is called Annecy, which is the the Khan of animation, as they call it. And then here in, you know, in, in Australia, we'd won the uh, AFI Award or the Actor Award, as they call them now. So we'd won a sort of collection of awards. And, and the one in France made us eligible for Academy Award consideration. And at the time, we didn't quite understand what that meant. But it basically meant we were put on a short list of about 20 or 30 short animated films from around the world, which meant that the members of the Academy... Um, all sat down in a theatre in Hollywood and watched these 20 shorts and then voted on the best one. And And I met an animator years later who was who sat in on one of those pre-screenings and he said, when Harvey came up, you, what happens is if, if everyone in the audience don't enjoy the film, they're all given a red clicker pen and they point this laser beam at the screen and if enough red dots appear on the screen, the film gets pulled because they've got to get through all these shorts. And a few red dots did start to appear on on the screen as Harvey was being projected. But luckily, at, I don't know, the five or six minute mark, they changed their mind and they kept watching the film. So, you know, that story still, you know, hairs on the back of my neck raise up when I hear that. Because if there'd been a couple of more red dots, we we wouldn't have made it through to the five. And so you make it through to the five. How does that get announced? Did Melanie get a phone call or, or what was the – Melanie Coombs, your, your producer, but, but how did you find out? Well, we'd, we'd been told by the Academy that 
if we were to make the five, the academy make all the announcements, and they still do on, you know, I think four weeks before the big night, they have a ceremony where they get a celebrity to announce the nominations in all the category. And that happens pretty early in the morning in Los Angeles. So it's a, it was about midnight our time here. And we were told that if we, and but this is before, you know, broadband and, and you know, uh, fast internet. So we were told that if the phone rang at midnight, it would be the Academy to say that we'd uh, been nominated. But as it turns out, we had a friend over there and he, he got in first. He rang us first. So we we had about, I don't know, 20 or so people in my little tiny rental apartment in St Kilda on the Esplanade. And that we had the 7.30 report were there with their cameras ready to roll in case, you know, we we, we were, the phone rang. So, um, you know, my family and friends, and the, and we, and the phone did ring, and, but it, was, it wasn't the Academy, it was my friend Ron to say, uh, Adam, you know. Uh, and actually, the other funny thing was, just before that phone call, the phone rang again, and it was my friend Greg ringing to see whether the phone had rung, and we said, get off the line, Greg, we're waiting to hear, you know, if the Academy ring. So it was a bit of a crazy night, and of course, when we, when we did find out we were, we were nominated, we, everyone went berserk, you know. And did the 7.30 report run the phone call with Ron or the phone call with the Academy? They, the they got the one of Ron, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, and, and I can't even remember now when the Academy finally did ring or if they did at all. It, it was all a bit of a blur because, you know, everyone started drinking and it just turned into this big, big uh, celebration, and for us... We thought that was it. That that just being nominated was as was as far as we were going to get. You know, we we didn't even plan on going. We didn't think you know it was worth even going. So what was what happens if you're an Academy Award nominee? Do you get do they shout at you? Can you or do you have to fly over yourself? How's it work? Well, as as we quickly found out, uh, the phone never rang again, and <laughs> you, you you basically you get two tickets to the the ceremony and two tickets to the governor's ball, which happens straight afterwards, and that's it. So there were no first class airfares, no fancy hotel bookings or anything like that. And as I mentioned, I you know I was on the dole at the time, and I knew my my fortnightly dole check was not going to get me anything much. And uh, but the word got out, and actually Channel Nine, I, I think it was the Today Show, the breakfast show, they found out, and they, they did this whole segment, help Adam Elliott get to the Oscars, and so suddenly I was given all this stuff, tuxedos and new shoes and fancy sunglasses and. And Film Victoria, who one of the investors in the film, they they gave us a grant which paid for the airfare. So, you know, the kindness of strangers got us there. And again, I think it's because people felt sorry for us. And I always think of the Oscars as being in February or March. Yeah, Feb, yeah. So tell us about going. Do you remember what day you left and, and what happened next? Yeah, well, look, I was sensible enough to actually buy a, um, a little handy cam, you know, uh, bef- before we had cameras on our phones. And um, I did sort of film, you know, the days leading up. You know, we, we just, Melanie and I got on the plane. I took my, my partner, Dan, at the time, who I'd only been seeing for a couple of months. I gave him all my frequent flyer points, so he came over that way. Um, my friend Juliet, she came, uh, my brother Josh came over as well. So it was sort of a little posse of us. And we managed to get a, a, a reservation at the Roosevelt, famous Roosevelt Hotel, right opposite the Kodak Theatre. And, um, you know, we just spent the, the two or three days leading up to the night just sort of enjoying being there. Again, we, we had no expectations. 
and of course we only allowed two people into the Kodak Theatre, so all our friends and family were at the uh, the uh, steakhouse grill restaurant across the road. So, you know, and they were watching it live on TV like everyone else. So, you know, when we did win, they, they, they lost their minds. <laughs> <laughs> and so how much thought, if you're going, you say you didn't have a huge amount of thought to winning. I presume you give some thought to winning in case, for the very reason we have this podcast and focus on the speeches, in case you have to give a speech. The most, probably the most terrifying speech <laughs> that anyone can imagine giving. Because is there an Australian who's given a speech in front of a bigger audience than you? Well, again, I, I, I look back and I was very uh, naive. I, I really um, was not prepared for what was about to happen. I do remember sitting by the swimming pool at the Roosevelt Hotel that afternoon, jotting down the people I would have to thank in case it happened. And I remember Melanie, my producer, saying, we've got to, you know, we've got to have at least a plan in case this miracle happens. So... You know, but luckily I didn't have many people to thank. There was Jeffrey Rush and, and the funding bodies and, you know, uh, it wasn't a long list. And I, I really didn't rehearse anything. And, and, and when I was up there on stage, it, it was really, it just all came out naturally. So going into the theatre, when does the kind of brush with A-list start to happen? Because I look at the people who are nominated that year. I mean, you've got Sean Penn winning, you've got Johnny Depp. Ben Kingsley, Jude Law, Bill Murray, Tim Robbins, Alec Baldwin, Benicio del Toro, uh, Charlize Theron, Diane Keaton, Naomi Watts. Like they're all they're sort of even bigger names now, perhaps than they were then. Well, the thing too was I remember going down the red carpet, and that in itself is is a ceremony. You know, that's an event in itself, and we just thought, well, we're nobodies. We'll just be ushered in quite quickly. But we had a whole row to ourselves. The nominees have a have, have their own lane, and all the other guests are in a squashed up lane. So we had all this extra space to roam and graze. And so Melanie and I just, you know, we went up and down, and you know, we saw Richard Wilkins from Channel Nine, and he had a chat to us, and we did a few little interviews here and there. But we were just star spotting, and we, we were just looking up and down at all these incredibly famous people who were quite short. <laughs> for some reason I thought oh gee they're all they're all short but you you know I remember seeing Robin Williams just running up and down being manic and and I remember seeing Charlize Theron coming and thinking oh my gosh she's she's beautiful and stunning and yeah every, everywhere you looked were were incredibly famous people and I remember saying to someone afterwards it it, it was like we were at Madame Tussauds wax museum except everybody moved and so you, you got quite used to it and I hate that word surreal but it really was surreal. We didn't feel, I didn't feel like I belonged there. I just felt like I didn't know any of these people. And to be honest, I just wanted to get the whole thing over and done with. And and luckily our category was in the first 15 minutes. But I, I do remember the one person who really did, uh, you know, I, I remember looking at him just in awe and it was Clint Eastwood and he was, we were being ushered to our seats going through the door and there he was two people away from me and just staring at the back of his head going, that's, that's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> so is it true you attended a, a lunch or something, a pre-Oscars dinner or lunch where you sat near Clint Eastwood, is that right? No, well sadly, yes, there, there's a lunch about, I don't know, three weeks before the ceremony for all the nominees in all the categories and of course we were we were in, invited but we couldn't afford to fly over to Los Angeles three weeks early um, so that is something we missed out on. But the Academy very nice and sent us a little card saying, oh, we're sorry you couldn't make it. 
and they they mix up all the tables so you could it's not like all the best actors sit on one table and all the best animation categories are down the back they mix it up so then you get you, you could have sit could have sat next to anyone and Clint Eastwood was the person I was going to sit next to <laughs> so you know, I got to see him, um, you know, the, the, the lunch, I, I really wish now in hindsight I'd, I'd somehow borrowed some money and, and got Melanie and I there early because this lunch was actually where people really did mingle and these big names really look after all the, all the little names and it's really this sort of love-in for all these filmmakers. And so, yeah, look, that I do regret not going. <laughs> you didn't run up to him when you saw the back of his head and said, I'm your dinner dinner. Oh, you did. Oh, look, I, I wish, you know, look, there's so many people I wished I'd have gone up to if I'd had the courage, but I, I just, I felt like a nobody and... I mean, I did talk to a few people afterwards at the at the Vanity Fair party, which is another story. But um, again, I look back and I think, oh, I've only just plucked up enough courage to go up to Clint Eastwood or Oprah. I mean, I remember seeing Oprah there, thinking, oh, there's Oprah, and um, every, every yeah, everywhere you look, Meryl Streep, you know, <laughs> Diane. Ke- Actually, I remember seeing Di- Diane Keaton coming dressed in her in an Annie Hall sort of suit, and think, oh God, Diane Keaton, you know. <laughs> and so tell us, sitting down, you know, you said you're you're up pretty early in the in the program. What do you remember of the opening? Did it have the big, the big sort of showstopper? Was there a number, or what happened in those first minutes of the ceremony? Well, I remember sitting down, and we sort of we weren't sitting right on the end of the aisle, or there was something, there was some rumor and myth that if you were sitting right on the end of the aisle, that meant that you'd won because it's quicker access to the stage. And I don't, we were sort of down the back to the side. I can't remember exactly where we were sitting, but. I remember saying to Melanie, well, i got a feeling we haven't won because we're not in the prime seats, you know. But again, we just wanted to watch the show because Billy Crystal was was the host that year and and he hadn't done one for a few years and, you know, Oni came and sang a song. I don't really remember the first 15 minutes much at all because we, I think we knew that our category was going to be quite early on. We didn't know that Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson were going to be the presenters. And it's certainly, there's no tap on your shoulder in advance that you've won and be prepared. You you know, you are genuinely surprised and it is live. The next thing I remember was them coming out, Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson coming out dressed as Starsky and Hutch, which was the film they were in that year. Please welcome Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller. Why aren't you wearing your hutch outfit? I don't know. I just, I just saw it look a little goofballish. It was your idea. I know, I know. I feel bad. I just decided, you know, it's kind of bad taste to come out here and plug your movie. It's a little shameless. What are you talking about? Billy Crystal came out when you're riding a horse for City Slickers. Man, he's Billy Crystal. Okay, he built this freaking house. You look good. You look good. You look cozy. Okay, look at this. Right. okay. Um, the nominees for best live action Ben, ben. What? Up, up, it's their moment It's not your moment to pout Come on, it's the Academy Awards It's not the Ben Stiller I made a mistake now Everyone has to pay awards Let's go Try again The nominees 
I remember them saying the nominees are, and then I remember them saying the winner is Harvey Crumpet. But at that point, I, I, I remember looking at Melanie and she wasn't smiling, she was blank. And I remember thinking, oh, I, maybe I heard Harvey Crumpet twice, or maybe, but I'm sure they've just said Disney. But then some, I knew that it was us because suddenly this camera crew were running down the aisle and the camera was pointing at my head. And I knew that it was us because why would they point the camera at me? So, and this is all happening in a split second and you just go numb. I don't remember walking down the aisle. I said, it's just like a wedding. I, I don't remember that. I, I remember just finding myself at the lectern staring out at I think there's 5,000 people in the Kodak theatre and then someone had, I wish someone hadn't told me this but at the time you know there was another billion or half a billion or whatever people watching live around the world so you know I, I've given plenty of speeches over my life and, and, and acceptance speeches and things like that but this one was unique in that I wasn't nervous because it was so Everything was so foreign and and surreal that all I had to do was thank the people I had to and get get the hell off and and so I did. And the Oscar goes to Harvey Crumpet, Adam Elliott. This is the first Academy Award and nomination for Adam Elliott. Wow. Um, Harvey Crumpet has been a film that's been in my head for over 10 years and I'm so glad he's out. Um, we'd like to congratulate everyone in Australia who helped Harvey uh, come to life, in particular the Australian Film Commission, Film Victoria and SBS Independent. Harvey will be screening on SBS television next Monday night at 9pm. We'd also like to congratulate our fantastic cast and crew especially our uncle Geoffrey Rush for lending us his most beautiful voice. Finally, we'd like to thank uh, a very good, two very, very special people, uh, my friend Juliet and my beautiful boyfriend Dan. Thank you. I'd like to um, congratulate my mother, Margaret Harris, to live in the hearts of others, not to die, and you'll always be in my heart. We'd like to thank the Academy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, it all. Even talking about it now, I, I, do, I get quite emotional because it it, um, it wasn't meant to happen. So when we we're up there staring at all these people and they're all staring at us, um, I just think, well, I've got to, I've got to say something, and that's what I did. And and I remember looking down behind the orchestra pit because there's a full orchestra there as well. And there was a little TV monitor and it had a sort of a countdown saying 45, 43. And I didn't quite get it, but I realised that that must have something to do with me and that's how many seconds I had to get my speech out. And so I thanked everyone I had to thank. And I had like 15 seconds left uh, and I just thanked my my boyfriend Dan. So that, that already it was shocking people apparently. Um but the other thing I did was told everyone to tune into SBS on, I think it was Monday or Tuesday night, to watch Harvey Crumpet. And, um, you know, it was the best plug SBS has ever had. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, we found out afterwards, some, someone came up to us from Europe and told us that SBS was also a porn channel in Amsterdam or an adult channel of some variety. 
and SBS, of course, loved it, and Harvey rated through the roof. It did really well um, ratings-wise. But So that was an odd thing for me to do. I don't know why. I can't remember if I'd planned to say that. I don't think I did. It just it just came out. Um, I know you look, I, look I, I haven't watched my speech much at all. I, I find it too traumatic. <laughs> it's like returning to the scene of a car accident, but... Yeah, I mean, luckily I didn't. I didn't forget anyone. I could have gone through and thanked all the sound people and Bill, my editor, and all these other people. But we just wanted to get it over and done. We we knew people weren't there to watch us. We knew they wanted to get on with other things. You were actually preceded by best live action short, and that was one by someone who'd adapted a play. I think it was a World War Two play, and man, his speech was the if, on a speeches podcast. We have to say it was the perfect example of not of what not to do in a Oscar oh, speech. Right, okay. He went fast through names, <laughs> through sixty names, and then he he told the set the people who were trying to send him off that he was going to go longer. And then he got to the bit where he cried, which is great that he cried, but it was a bit about the war and what people who serve mean to him and the film but that's all over the wind-up music i'd like to thank our cast jonathan fur his parents david and janet ben allison ron perlman david andrews and the rest of our cast our crew kate miller betsy pollock bob Dusay, david boyd c robert holloway kelly matsumoto alonzo wilson the amazingly generous alan silvestri uh, Joe Roth for a 10-second grace period on the speech clock, please. Craig and Lisa Mayfin Cannon, Scott Gerson, Melissa Hoffman, Stanley Johnston, Rebecca Clark and the NCSA School of Filmmaking, Brian Spruill, Michael Zakula, Bev Woods, Cyril Durbinsky, Phil Radin, the lovely and talented Mark Shaman down there somewhere, please, for coming in late on this next music cue, Leon Silverman, John Stern, <laughs> Howard Anderson, Lee Kaplan, Jill Faulkner Summers, and our American treasure, William Faulkner, who wrote Two Soldiers in 1942, after the first unprovoked attack on the United States. It's the story of two brothers who fight to preserve their family and country. Like a sibling's love, a soldier's devotion is selfless and unconditional and need not concern itself with the politics of war. I dedicate this to my family and the soldiers who protect our loved ones and the freedoms we celebrate. Thank you. By comparison, when you came on, <laughs> seemingly cool as a cucumber, no notes, eyes up, Thanked, maybe you were advantaged by having such a small team, but thanked the key people involved. Said a really nice little opening where you said, yeah, what um, did I say? Wow, Harvey Crumpet has been a film that has been in my head for over 10 years, and I'm so glad he's out. Ah, uh, yeah. No, that's right. a really nice, neat. So I looked at the structure of this tiny little speech, and it's mentioned for Harvey, mentioned for the funders. Mentioned for the voice actors, and then in particular the the leading voice actor, and then a mention for personal partners, and you know, and and then Melanie comes in and and she gives you the tears with a, a reference to her mother. Ah, oh, that's right. Her mother was yeah. Her mother passed away shortly after, and I think that's the thing too. Melanie and I didn't want to, we didn't want to um, steal each other's uh, time allocation, and we certainly didn't want the the music to play over the top of us, and we didn't want to be one of those people, as you mentioned. I mean, I can't remember the people before or after, such a blur, but we, we again, we just, we didn't want to ruffle any feathers. <laughs> we just wanted to get it over and done with. But I do, yeah, now that you, you know, um, re- re- revisit that thing about Harvey getting him out, and it, it's true because I had... Making Harvey was very difficult. Um, I, as, I, as I mentioned, my partner had left me. We'd run out of money. I'd moved home with my parents. A, and it was a long, short film too. And and 
we we had such low expectations and um, I really just wanted to get on with making more films. And I, that's the thing I really hoped for with, with the Oscar was that it was going to open the doors to other films. But the speech, I, I look back and think, oh, and this is before I started corporate speaking or any of that, you know, proper, proper speaking. And, and I, again, you forget that a billion people or whatever, hundred, half a billion or whatever it is, and I think it's less these days. I think the, the audience was much bigger back then, pre-internet. Um, but you sort of, it's not regret, you sort of wished, I wished I'd put in other things into that speech or left things out or I, I don't know, I wished, I wished I'd had a little bit more confidence and courage and, and, and planned things a bit better. But again, hindsight, you know. And was Jeffrey Rush there? Was he in the after party or anything like that? No, no, Jeffrey was back here in Melbourne at the Cinema Nova with my parents. And every year the Cinema Nova does a live telecast of the Oscars. It's a little private industry event and we all sit in the cinema there, Cinema One. And um, so, yeah, the, the whole you know, Film Vic and all, all the funding agencies are at, at the Cinema Nova and Jeffrey Rush was there looking after my mum and dad. And luck, luckily someone recorded the um, that event, uh, just the sound actually, and... Weirdly, I got more emotional listening to that than I did from any other, you know, newspaper article or any other sort of recording because these were my, you know, these are people I did know. These were my family and friends. And to hear them all shrieking and, and crying. Um. Oscar goes to Harvey <laughs> Even now, I just I look back and think, God, I wished I was. I, I feel like I missed out. I wished I was at the Nova with them, <laughs> watching it, because Melanie and I are all alone in, in Hollywood with all these other people. So, uh, yeah, look, it, it is. It's like returning to the scene of a car accident. And even now, it's like, oh God, yeah, all these emotions come back. And the the Oscar itself, the the statue did Owen Wilson sort of whisper something to you as you got it or what or, or Ben Stiller was there any interaction there or you were straight into action I I can't when I can't remember who gave us the Oscar can't remember if I shake their hands or what they said I remember being in the lift with Owen Wilson afterwards Ben Stiller had nicked off and and I think Owen Wilson was there to sort of look after us and get us through to the the journalists room where the media were and he was really lovely. I remember him. I remember he was really kind to us. I don't remember anything he said, but I just remember the, a kind, smiley face from him. The thing we quickly realised too was the Oscar. Yes, it's heavy and all the rest, but we started to see if our names were on it because you know if our names were on it, then they hadn't made a mistake. This was real. But we quickly realised that they they send a plaque out in the mail two weeks later, and you have to go and get the plaque attached yourself. <laughs> So our names are actually weren't on it, but I remember spinning it around and on the back is a four-digit number and that's the serial number of how many Oscars they hand, uh, they'd handed out over the 76 years that that's been, the ceremony had been going. Do you know what number you are? 3,184, which is also the postcode of Elwood, where I was living when I wrote the script to Harvey Crumpet. So... <laughs> 
you know, I'm not religious or superstitious, but I remember seeing that thinking, this is bizarre. This Maybe this was meant to happen, you know. Yeah. So then there's the, the question of whether you made history because um, you mm. mentioned partner Dan, new boyfriend Dan, three months on the scene, Dan, <laughs> yes, yes. in your Oscars speech, which is a, a great way to hopefully cement a relationship. But, um, yes. but were you the first person to ever mention a same-sex partner in the Oscars ceremony? Well, look, I um, to begin with, I, I really it wasn't a political statement or anything like that. I had been seeing Dan for three months. I'd, I'd just broken up from a, another relationship, and Dan and I were getting along really well. And I thought, well, I'd like to thank him somehow, but I didn't want to say partner because it sounded too like it could be a business partner, too ambiguous. And I didn't want to certainly didn't want to say lover because that's just oh, sounds like a teenager or something like. Um, so the only word I had left was boyfriend, and so I, I just said, and I, I don't know, I said my beautiful boyfriend. I don't know whether I was trying to flatter him or why I said beautiful. I'm not sure, but I said it anyway because I felt that well, you know, he'd be really annoyed if I didn't thank him. You know, okay, he didn't help make the film, but he certainly was there as a support. But of course, afterwards, um, the media went sort of berserk, and yeah, I remember there was an article written by. Um, Good old um, uh, Mr. Bolt from the Herald Sun saying that I'd I'd thanked my partner Dan or boyfriend Dan as a sort of some sort of stunt or something, which I was quite annoyed about. But um, and at the time, you know, America was going through um, a debate about gay marriage, and so a lot of people, um, particularly from the gay and lesbian community, took me on as their own and and celebrated what I'd said, but. Again, I just I just said it because I felt like I needed to, but whether or not it, I was the first person, and this is what I still don't know to this day. But apparently, I was the first person to say boyfriend. <laughs> but other, there had been someone else previously who'd said partner or something, but again, not in a not in an overt way. And of course, since plenty of other um, male and females have, have thanked their same-sex partners, and now it's like big deal, you know. Yeah. But back in two thousand and four, it certainly did ruffle a few feathers, and I certainly did get some um, crank calls and abusive uh, emails and letters. Yeah. Thankfully, before social media, so that I, I wasn't trolled. But um, mostly, you know, everyone in Australia was pretty good. I, I most most people when they will come up to me on the street and say, "I thought what you said was fantastic," you know. So, and it was it a topic in the press conference, and what was the the, the post? ceremony press conference like yeah well what happens is you, you get in this lift as i said owen wilson and i and melanie and probably a bunch of other people i don't remember we all got squashed into this lift and you, you go down or up i can't remember you but you suddenly are put into this big room full of uh, international media and you just sort of stand on this stage with your oscar and um there's an mc who says any questions for mr elliot and ms coombs uh and again, because we're in the short animation category, it's not like there was a thousand questions, but there were certainly, you know, a half a dozen or so. And there was that one about SBS, did I know it was an adult channel? And, you know, just random things. Mel, I'm not sure what Melanie remembers. And uh, I sort of just remember there was a few Australian journalists. There was a lot of questions about us beating Disney, because that was the other thing. Disney had a short called Destino, which um, Walt Disney had... had started making i think 40 years earlier in collaboration with salvador dali 
um, Disney and Dali apparently didn't get along very well and the project was never finished in their lifetimes. So Roy Disney, Walt's nephew who was running the Disney empire at the time, around 2000, decided to put some money uh, aside and finish off this little short surrealist 2D film called Destino. So we're up against Disney and Dali. <laughs> and then Pixar, of course, who make all the toy stories, they, they had a short called Bounden. Um, Sony had a short called Gone Nutty, they, which they made as a short before Ice Age. So there were these really high-end short animated films, all um, computer and 2D animation. We were the only plasticine one. So And our budget, well, we said our budget's what they would have spent on catering. So, you know, we really, really were the underdogs. And did you hang out with the competitors? Were you were you hang with Mr. Destino director there as well with you? Well, afterwards, once we were at the Vanity Fair party, you know, I I also felt guilty that we'd beaten Disney, Pixar, and Fox Studios, and and it it was a weird sort of sensation because I remember sitting down at the dinner afterwards, the Governor's Ball, and seeing. Roy Disney heading towards me <laughs> and John Lasseter, who was running Pixar at the time. and uh, But they just wanted to c- congratulate me and were very, you know, very lovely and kind. And and, and we'd al- already sort of mixed with them prior because, um, you know, the, the lead up to the ceremony, they have these little gatherings for animators. And the good thing about animators is, is that they are by nature very kind people. They're not highly competitive like actors might be or live action directors so we all sort of you know there is a camaraderie and the fact that we've all chosen an art form that is quite peculiar means that we we sort of do have sympathy for each other and we don't really want this to be a tournament and a competition we just prefer to make make art and be left alone so so you know Roy Disney was was fantastic John Lasseter gave me a big hug and uh and the other nominees all came up, and yeah, look, it, it was um, yeah. There was no one, no one um, tried to trip me over or push me down the stairs. No, they, were, they were all very nice. And and if we go back to a list spotting, Governor's Ball, what's that like? Well, the Governor's Ball again, a bit blurry. I I, I remember, and again, I had, hadn't had a drink or anything like this. I wanted to remember as much as I could, but I remember at the Governor's Ball finally having a glass of champagne or whatever it was, and I remember seeing too on the table all, all the cutlery was gold, and I remember thinking, gee, I should nick one of these knife and, knives and forks and take it home and sell it on eBay because I'm on the doll. So you know, it's my doll mentality sort of kicking in and. <laughs> Um, and you, you know, you get start give, get given all these gifts and, um, every, and like even the menu for the governor's ball was this beautifully embossed thing, you know? And so we started taking little souvenirs and, and just looking around the room and just seeing who was there. It all went so quickly. And, and also two people, strangers are just continually coming up to you and, and thank you, you know, congratulating you. So you have to, there's a lot of small talk going on and, your ambitions to go and stalk celebrities, really, I never really got around to it. And the next minute, and also, too, all our friends were, were waiting for us across the road. So we had to get out of the governor's ball, find all our friends. We I can't remember who'd rented the only limousine left in Hollywood that night, which was this old white beat-up one from memory. And we all piled into this rented limo and, and went off to you know see if we could get into any of the parties. And, of course, the big one is the Vanity Fair party. 
And we weren't sure, you know, how the hell we were going to get in. But everyone kept saying, well, you've got an Oscar. That's like a golden crowbar that opens any door, you know. Are you still holding this thing, are you? Like right oh, the well, thing? that's the thing. You keep losing the Oscar. You know, everyone keeps grabbing it and taking photos of it. And all my friends, when we finally did connect with them, they were, they were off having a great time with it. And I do remember the other thing, too, in terms of stars, was when we, were, when we came out of the Governor's Ball, we were put in a limo queue or, or to get out or something. So you're always in a queue for something. And I spotted Peter Jackson, and that was one person I did go up to, and he'd just won three Oscars for Lord of the Rings. I can't remember, best film, best director, whatever. And he was holding a bunch of Oscars, and I just went up and congratulated him, and he recognised me and knew that I was from Australia and, and had seen our category. And and I don't remember what we said, but we put all our Oscars down on the ground to shake hands. And I remember going to pick up my Oscar, and I picked up his best director of best film Oscar, and he picked up my... So he could have gone home with my Oscar, and I could have gone home with his, and it would have been a big mix-up, but luckily we swapped it, and he was lovely too. I think there was this real sort of... um, you know, Southern Hemisphere sort of camaraderie. All these New Zealanders were everywhere and all these Hobbit actors. And, um, yeah, Australia did really well that year too. I think, um, um, what's his name, Boyd, who won for cinematography for Master and Commander. So it was one of those years where we where we did quite well. And the Vanity Fair party, did you get in? We did get in. You, you know, once they saw the Oscar and and we were a bit worried we would, we couldn't get, get in all our friends and, and hanger-oners, but uh, we were allowed to bring them all in and off we went. And, and I remember going in and sitting down and for the first time feeling this huge sense of relief. But then I remember I spotted, um, you know, uh, uh, Bill Murray, who was up for uh, Lost in Translation, and I'd, I wished I'd gone up to him. But again, I just kept looking around and seeing all these people. And actually, this one person came and sat next to me, and she I thought she was a Marilyn Monroe uh, impersonator. And she she went to hold the Oscar. She'd never held one, so I let her hold it and da da And we got chatting, and all my friends were staring at me. And I thought, well, maybe I haven't recognised this person. And sure enough, she got off and they said, Adam, do you, did you realise that was Gwen Stefani? And I said, well, I don't even know who Gwen Stefani is. But she was very nice. I thought she was a Marilyn Monroe impersonator. Um, but yeah, everywhere you, you looked. And I remember seeing Francis Ford Coppola too. Again, there's certain stars that I saw where I really was starstruck. And, and I remember just seeing him sitting over there with somebody. And again, I didn't go up but. Did did when did Robin Williams do his rush at you? Was that um, oh, so that happened um, post ceremony uh, before the governor's ball. Robin Williams came up to me. I think Melanie was in the loo. Or I don't know where she was, and he he came running towards me. And I'd seen him quite manic on the red carpet prior. And he came up and he sort of grabbed me and he said something like "Yay for animation!" and then and then tapped me on the shoulder and then he ran off and I just said, oh my God, I've just been interfered with by Robert Williams, you know, and, and, and then there's, yeah, there's so many um, encounters I had, but nothing meaningful. I, I, again, I wished I'd had some, some, it was all small talk and just, you know, self-congratulations. I think uh, everyone says they barely remember their own weddings. I think this has probably got that on steroids, yeah? Oh, for sure. You know, I, I, you know, as I said, I had my little handy cam and I filmed as much as I could, but of course we weren't allowed to take that into the ceremony or the governor's ball or the vanity fair party. So all that stuff, I just had to rely on my memory and uh, my friends' memories as well. So, yeah, we, 
I think because I've also told these stories so many times over the years that there's that thing too. I think, did that really happen? Did I, you know, like, did I really meet Robin Williams? Did I really, you know, was that really Francis Ford Coppola? And, and then my friends say, yeah, that really was him. He really was there. And, and they were, well, you know, Steven Spielberg was there. Actually, I remember the other thing I remember being was in a, had to, I was put in a green room just before the end of the ceremony. Uh, they came and plucked me from the audience in the ad break. And what they wanted to do that year was have all the winners come back on stage at the end of the ceremony while the credits rolled and did a big bow. So um, they just grabbed me. They, they left Melanie behind, which was a bit annoying. Um, and I was put in this green room and there were lots of green rooms and I just got pushed into one and I remember looking up and seeing good old Harvey Weinstein and uh, Steven Spielberg and Rennie Zellweger was in there too. She was up for, uh, I don't know what film it was that year. So it's sort of, you know, again, I didn't talk to them. They were just sitting there having their conversations. I was just eating food off the free food platter and having a drink. And and then back to Australia, and this is when I sort of start embracing you and holding the Oscar myself when you come into the Triple R studio and you go on this wild, presumably a, a wild few months that are just incredible. Yeah, look, it was we, we got back to Australia and we again weren't prepared. We we got off the plane at Tullamarine and the the media were there and the I remember coming back to my little flat in St Kilda and um, Steve Brax, the premier, was there with a bottle of champagne and a handwritten card on behalf of Victoria. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> um, it was. Yeah, and then we were just... We also had a DVD to promote, Harvey Crumpet DVD, so Madman Entertainment had us off on these um, media junkets all around Australia, and it went for months. You know, I did, did every breakfast show, every... You know, I did Rove, I did Bert Newton's show, you know, all those those shows, and it helped sell the DVD for sure. But, yeah, and I, and I quickly realised I'd lost my anonymity and that suddenly everywhere I went, people wanted to come up and, and congratulate us. Again, it was like winning a, a gold medal at the Olympics. So that was very difficult to get used to, that I suddenly couldn't go somewhere without being approached. Uh, and the other issue was I was still on the dole. So I had to, you know, we had to start thinking about, well, what were we going to do next? And so I, I just wanted to get back into writing. And, 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 of course, we thought, well, that's enough with the shorts, time for a feature. So I started writing this feature called Mary and Max. The other th- funny thing that happened was we were flying up to Canberra to meet the Prime Minister of the time, John Howard, because Rod Kemp, I think, was a federal arts minister, and he was very keen for us to meet the PM and tell the PM that this was a government-funded film, 100%, Film Vic, SBS, uh, the Australian Film Commission, but to also tell John Howard that I was unemployed and that the arts needed needed support and it's very important that we support short filmmakers so we can get feature filmmakers. So there was a real sort of uh, political reason for me to meet with him and um, so yeah, I've got a picture of John Howard and I and, and the Oscar and, uh, and the weird thing is I didn't even vote for him and, you know, there I was. <laughs> And we met, because I, I presume at some point you decided, we'd met through radio, but we, we actually became even better friends. We, we were both doing a job. Yeah, do you remember that? And you obviously decided the way to, to, to supplement the dole or to get off the dole was to hit the corporate speaking world. Yeah, well, look, I, at the time I didn't know what a corporate speaker was. Um, I, I was being invited to 
to tell my anecdotes and recollections of what happened on the night at the Oscars to, you know, my local library and, and the art centre here in Melbourne invited me to come and talk to the members of the, the National Gallery. And so I started doing these little talks and I was quickly approached by a, a speaking bureau uh, who said, you, you know, for me, to, I should get some slides together and do a proper keynote because, you know, the people would be prepared to pay yeah. for me to talk. And I said, really? Oh, okay, because I was doing them for free up until then. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a couple of trial runs and I can't remember what my first professional gig was, but um, I started doing them all around Australia. And I really enjoyed it because, you know, I felt like I had to give back too because Harvey Crumpet was funded by the taxpayer. So I, I sort of felt like this Oscar was partly theirs, you know, they'd supported it. So... So, yeah, off, off I went. And then, you know, I think I bumped into you first was the, I think it was, can we say the yeah, name of the Sanctuary company? Sanctuary Cove. And then we're both musing over, it was, yeah, it was it was Shell or Mobile, wasn't it? I think it was Ampole, actually. Ampole? Yeah. So, we were working for, what, the, what, the, what in 2021, the tobacco of 2021. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we were at a conference at Sanctuary Cove, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. And I, I had to give a talk in the evening i think i was using my slot was after dinner before dessert and then i remember after dessert was the amazing raymond who was a magician i think you were the mc tony you were the mc yeah Yeah. and i remember we're all wearing these tuxedo (laughs) t-shirts but look again back then i was as i said i was i was broke after the oscars so i was happy to talk to anyone i want to talk to the klu klux klan you know i was like if you pay me to talk i'll be there your, your corporate speech was excellent, and and in fact, I, I, the only thing I knew was that you, you didn't really like giving it, and it's after a while, like you weren't directing. No, and no. And so it ended up being this sort of tax on your life in the sense that you had to do speech after speech after speech, and you weren't writing and directing. No, and the and the irony is, even to this day, I mean, I don't give it as often as I do, as I used to, but some years I I've earned more money talking about what I do than from what I do, and I I, I find that quite tragic in many ways because you know my ambition's always been a profe- to be a professional filmmaker, but there's certainly big gaps between each project where I'm as broke as I was you know the day we won the Oscar. So corporate speaking and just getting up and talking to audiences it's not only a good way for me to to survive financially but it also it's a weird selfish affirmation that what i'm doing is okay that people do enjoy my films and that i i should continue on with it and have the was it the courage conviction and 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 passion to to keep going and because you know, being alone writing is you lose your confidence, and you often go back to your default mode, which is feeling like a fraud. So, so getting out there, meeting people, um, going interstate, talking to whatever group is is really validating, and um, reminds me of the importance of what I'm doing as an artist. Yeah, and you you were good at it. I mean, if you had to tell someone you've got the day of your life that everyone's interested in (laughs) Um, what was your structure of that speech and do you remember the bits that just worked every time well look I certainly quickly realized that anything to do with the doll and being unemployed and talking about being at you know at the Oscars 
and being unemployed. And I think I had $80 in the bank at the time. Talking about Centrelink, not being embarrassed about being unemployed and, and that, you know, the safety net of, of, of being on the dole is really important that we should really, you know, there was a message to my speech, which is we support our artists, you know. Uh, we, 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 we are good storytellers and we can make good films and we can compete against the rest of the world. So... Without being too preachy or on my soapbox, um, I think it, my speech was really a mix of entertaining the audience but, but also trying to get them to understand the importance of the arts in Australia. I mean, you know, if we're in France, it would be a different story. You're preaching to the converted. But here we have to continually remind Australians that um, Australian films are good, you know, art galleries are important, you know, we all love sport but the arts are really crucial to our um, survival as, a, as an interesting culture. So, so yeah, there was, there was a purpose to my speech but I think primarily I enjoyed giving that speech because I love to make people laugh and my, my father was an acrobatic clown so he always reminded me, he's passed away now, but he always reminded me Adam, you might call yourself an auteur, you might call yourself a writer, director, filmmaker, whatever, but, you know, don't forget you're there to entertain. And when you're on stage, you're there to entertain. And with your films, you're there to entertain. So, as he always said, make them laugh, make them cry, and then get off. <laughs> <laughs> and you're about to do it again, Adam Elliott's next feature film, shooting in 2022. Tell us about what you can tell us about it. Yeah, well, look, it's been a uh, Mary and Max, which was my first feature, and that was after Harvey. That was that was back in two thousand and nine, and I'm a very slow writer. And suddenly, all these years have gone past, and um, I, I finally now got the money together to make another film. And it's good old Australian taxpayers supporting this one. It's a seven million dollar budget. It's uh, ninety minutes long. We're going to have about a hundred people involved helping me to make it. Um, all in. All in stop motion. There's no computer generated imagery. Everything you'll see, you will see, will be handmade. Uh, every prop set character. It's like all my other films. It's about an underdog. It's set in Melbourne in the 70s in Collingwood, good old Collingwood. So yeah, it's another underdog story. Um, I think I'm, it's safe to say my films are formulaic. <laughs> and, um, I've worked out what the audience want from me, and I'm happy to just keep doing it. I do wish you know that. I could make the films more quickly and more cheaply, but with stop motion animation, we, we really each animator can only do five seconds a day. So all the technology in the world is really not going to speed up that that horrible statistic. In fact, is that for twenty for one second of movement, we have to do twenty four frames just to create one second. So this film will take us probably at least eighteen months to make. So it won't be ready till twenty twenty three twenty four. Who knows where the world will be by then? And uh, and I do get asked all the time. Oh, yeah, you know. So, do you want to win another Oscar? And I was like, No, I, I've one's enough. I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't even want to win the first one. Um, it would be like getting struck by lightning twice. But then, as a friend said to me the other day, he said, Oh, well, if you win another Oscar, you can have really fancy bookends. I said, Oh, yeah. <laughs> where do you keep it? Uh, well, it was at Acme here in Melbourne uh, in the museum, but um, they've had a big refurb, and so I, it's been—it's come back to me. I'm not allowed to give it away. It's—I'm it, uh, not allowed to. Um, it's only allowed to be loaned. Uh, so it's currently sitting on my desk at home. And <laughs> <laughs> probably shouldn't be putting that out on the podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, what's your advice to the next person who is listening today who has to give? 
a thank you speech to a big audience? Well, it's look, we all we all love speeches that look like they haven't been rehearsed, and I think some of the best, my favourite speeches are the ones that just are off the cuff. But I really think you should plan it. I think the art is in making it look like it's spontaneous and improvised. But um, you know. And don't leave anyone out. I mean, I forgot to, you know, there's a few people I forgot to thank. <laughs> but uh, I think, too, if it's, an, if it's an Oscar speech that you might be preparing for, don't forget that really the audiences want at least one gag out of your speech. So if you can just squeeze in one gag, just try your hardest. Uh, Adam Elliott, it was an amazing moment for all of us who knew you, and it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for having me, Tony. You, you go. Here we go. Welcome along to the avocado ad, and please welcome into the studio to do the ad with me to speak on the podcast studio, Tony Wilson. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Jack. And it is time for the green skin and purple skin avocado promotion. Wow, what an avocado the green skin avocado is, Jack. I would rate it as the prince of avocados. How would you rate it? The prince of avocados. Well, I mean, it's it's a big avocado, isn't it? It's huge, it's big, and if I cut it open, let's have a look in the middle. Uh, it's green and the flash is perfect. Have we done Find out more, Jack, at their website, which is greenskinavocados.com.au Or check them out on Facebook and Instagram. Good job, Jack. There's no speech of the week this week because I played it at the start of the episode and throughout the interview as well. So I'll just get on with the thank yous. Thank you, Adam Elliott. What a pleasure to catch up again. It's always such fun talking, both off mic and on and this was one of my favourites so thank you very much Adam's films well Harvey Crumpet obviously that's released through Madman and hopefully it's streamable somewhere certainly Mary and Max Adam Elliott's follow up feature is available and next year cannot wait he will be filming another feature it's been a long wait as Adam said since 2009 and Mary and Max but we'll have new Adam Elliott genius to marvel at in 2023 or 4 or 5 or whenever the project is completed but filming next year very excited Adam a big thank you to David Bridey for the theme music David's also scoring the film that I've made over the last few years he's in the business of doing that at the moment he's also in the business of shipping himself off to Antarctica to be the composer in residence over the summer. So enjoy that, David. Thank you so much for what you've done for Speakola with a great theme song. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to the podcast reader, podread.org forward slash Speakola, offer code Speakola. And thank you also to Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados. Two years of generosity greenskinavocados.com.au Thank you to subscribers, patrons, patreon.com forward slash speakola. Look in the show notes, tell a friend, rate us on iTunes, spread the word. 
And keep an eye out over the next few weeks for the Speakola Best Speeches of the Year Awards. I put them out in the newsletter, which you can subscribe to at the website, speakola.com. And maybe this year I can do a little podcast adjunct to that where we look at the best speeches of the year and play little snippets from them and talk about why they were great. So that might pop up in the feed between now and New Year. Keep your ears out, spread the word, have a great run into the holidays. This could be the last one for 2021. There might be one more. Season's greetings to you all and thanks a lot for tuning in and being part of Speakola in 2021. Until next time. Speakola.